Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Bible Appreciation 101. I want to thank uh, Dan and the chorus for that prelude to the lesson this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis says that the 19th Psalm is, quote, the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. We do have uh, some Calvin and Hobbes to help us this morning. <clears throat> Calvin says, look, Hobbes, I got a model airplane. Want to help me build it? Sure. Wow, a phantom jet. I can't wait till it's done. Look at all those little pieces. Here, you put those pieces together, and I'll do these. Then we'll stick yours on mine, okay? Shouldn't we read the instructions? They're quite lengthy. Do I look like a sissy? And then we have one more that continues into the Sunday edition. Here we go. Calvin's F4 phantom screams across the sky. But what's this? The canopy glass is all smeared. He can hardly see through it. Oh no, the throttle snaps off in his hand. Calvin's only hope is to land, but the wheels refuse to open. They're stuck. Frantically, Calvin tries to eject, but the cockpit is fused together. His jet is a hopeless mess. Everything is going wrong. Stupid model. Well, it's doubtful that Calvin is going to do any better on his construction projects until he follows the directions. In his book, Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain has a conversation between Tom and his good friend, Huck Finn. Tom is trying to get Huck to uh, form a band of robbers and take captives like pirates. And Huck asks, well, what, pirates, what do pirates do with their captives? And Tom says, ransom them. And Huck says, ransom? What's that? And Tom says, I don't know, but that's what we got to do. And Huck says, but how can we do it if we don't know what it is? And Tom says, why, blame it all, we got to do it. Don't I tell you that it's in the books do you want to go doing different from what's in the books and get things all muddled up? Well, Tom, uh, I think, was wrong about reading up on pirates just to do what they did. But he was right to think that we need guidance from an objective source, a higher authority. My violin teacher in elementary school, Mr. Goodman, told me, if all else fails, read the directions. Our appliances, electronic devices, our vehicles all come with instructions from the manufacturer. But the one who has made us has not left us on our own. He has not left himself without witness. We see it in the skies and in the scriptures. 
And Psalm 19 reminds us of the treasure we have. God speaks to us through nature and through Holy Scripture. And while we are not under the covenant that God made with Moses, uh, the truth, the standards, the principles, the precepts, the moral instruction is still valid. The Old Testament is still our Scripture. And so, again, from Psalm 19, let's start at verse 1. The heavens proclaim the glory of God, and the sky above declares His handiwork, the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge, makes known the message. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their sound, and the word here is line, which I think might refer to music, goes out through all the earth. It's like singing, perhaps, and their words to the end of the world. So the skies, the stars, the galaxies announce the power and greatness of God. And the regular flow of day to night to day, that order shows that he is faithful, dependable. He makes each day, right? And our creator not only made the universe, he upholds it. Verse 4 continues, in them, the heavens, he has set a tent, a canopy for the sun, which comes forth like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. So like a new husband, the next morning, beaming with delight. And like a strong man, runs its course with joy. The sun is like a champion who can't wait to get out there and compete and run. Its rising, verse 6, is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit, its daily journey, to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So the sun rises in the east, it sets in the west, and it benefits everything. It is universal. And just as the light of the sun penetrates and pierces and brightens and warms, so does the light of God's truth, His inspired Word. And so we pick up in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word law means is instruction, direction, His teaching is sound and unimpaired. It has intrinsic validity. It is life-renewing. It refreshes the soul, one's very being. And I think maybe, too, especially souls that are despondent or depressed. The Psalms are indispensable, I think, in giving us hope. It reminds us, they remind us of who's in control. Uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure. His witness, His solemn assurance, His testimony is reliable and certain, trustworthy, making wise the simple, those who are willing to learn, who are teachable. I recently heard a story about a group of men who were digging a ditch, and they were going to put in a pipe. And as they were digging, they came across a buried electrical cable and they stopped because they didn't know if it was live. They didn't know what was in it. And so they called in an electrician. 
the electrician went to the substation in the transformer, and then he came back and he said, there's no power in the cable, it's okay to cut it. And the chief construction officer there said, are you sure it's okay to cut it? And the electrician said, well, I'm sure. And the construction chief said, well then, you cut the cable. And the electrician said, I'm sorry, I'm not that sure. Well, the moral is, when it comes to the eternal Word of God, we can be sure. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The principles of God are just, upright, and they bring joy to the heart, to the center of who we are. And these may be uh, people who are downhearted, someone who is losing heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It is clear and bright. Bringing insight and wisdom. The fear of the Lord, and here I think this is God's law, is something we revere, that we hold sacred. The fear of the Lord is clean. It is undefiled, uncontaminated, unmixed, enduring forever. It has abiding validity. It's, it will stand the test of time. It never goes out of date. It will not pass away. The judgments of the Lord are true. God's judgments, His decisions, His rulings, His rules match reality. They are solid. And as C.S. Lewis has said, they are based on the very nature of things and on the very nature of God, they hold water, and they are righteous altogether. They are just and good. They are dependable, faithful, and altogether. And I think that means they form a unity, uh, a united whole. They're, they're coherent. They all fit together. In verses 7 through 9, nine, there are six synonyms for the law of the Lord, His instruction, His direction. And in each of these phrases, we have God's personal name that qualifies or governs the phrase. So they're His testimonies, His precepts, His principles, His ordinances, His rules. It's the Lord who's making a claim and giving guidance to us, His creatures for our benefit, for our happiness, for our eternal good. Verse 10, more precious, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. We're talking pure gold, refined gold, gold that has been purified by the fire and the dross has burned away. When I was a boy, I dreamed of digging up treasure in our front yard, and I would have been happy if I'd found a magnet or, you know, a quarter or something. But the treasure here is abundant, plentiful, much fine gold. God isn't stingy. There is treasure everywhere. Sweeter also than honey than flowing honey from the comb. Honey that is new and fresh, 
coming directly from the honeycombs. So we are blessed beyond words to have the Word of God. These rules, these stories, this poetry, prophecy, psalmody, these promises, this grand narrative that's given through the Spirit and preserved for us by His providence. It is more valuable than the finest gold and the sweetest honey. And I think it's a, there's a paradox in life um, that rules, we may not think much of that, of them, but rules set us free, good rules, for example, to play games, right? We're not quite ready for that, thank you. Um, sound law is, um, blesses society, it enables us to live together. Okay, in uh, his book, The Beginning of Wisdom, which is about Genesis, Leon Cass has this to say about the institution of law. Law. He says, it makes possible a new form of sociality. Joining together, getting together, that's what law does. Civil society. Founded on shared, explicit expectations. There has to be buy-in by people. It has to be clear. And agreed-upon notions of justice and punishment. And again, he, here he's referring to Genesis 9 and what God said after the flood. Justice and punishment. Precisely as it restrains human impulses... It reigns in our selfishness as it restrains human impulses. It liberates human possibility. It sets us free. Now, that is, that is a paradox. But moral law fosters community and cooperation and consideration, right? Life together in community. Rules set us free to get out on the streets and highways Rules, gram grammar, spelling rules enable us to communicate, to talk and read and write. we got to have them. Or think of this example. Um, think of them as fences. I understand that uh, when children are playing on a playground, if there are no fences, then they kind of huddle in and come in close. But if you put the fences up, then they'll go all the way out to the edge and use the whole area to exercise and have fun. The fences are protection. A Harold Shank, who uh, many of you probably know, uh, was part of a group that went into the Soviet Union uh, as the Iron Curtain fell in the late 80s, early 90s. And he says, one question that we heard over and over again from those people was, how do you teach moral standards? And they said, we have fathers in our country who'd rather drink vodka than spend time with their children. We have husbands and wives running around on each other. They don't value their vows. People go to work. They check in. But they don't do any work. They just sit around all day. People lie freely. How do you teach moral standards? And Harold said... Well, there's a flip side to that question, and that is, why were they that way? 
Why was their society the way it was? And he said, it was because for 74 years they'd been taught there's no God. And there's no moral standard at all. That you just did what was best for the state. And that became the standard. And he says, if you don't have a standard, you end up with chaos. And so in scripture, we have a touchstone a foundation in a world that's turned upside down. Shouldn't we read the instructions? Verse 11, Moreover, by them, by God's rules, by God's directives, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Not everything I think or want to do is a good idea. As John Stone Street says, ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims. We want good ideas, good principles. God's rules are there for a reason. And just because I think something might be okay doesn't mean it is in the real world. Right? Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Who can see himself? Acquit me from hidden faults. Forgive the sins I don't see. What I do in ignorance. Verse 13. Keep your servant also from willful sins, presumptuous sins, deliberate wrongs. Let them not rule over me. Sin can be a terrible master. Bad habits can take over. Pride can take over. So we have this petition. Then, David says, I shall be blameless, no longer trapped, no longer living that way. I shall be blameless, innocent of great transgression, grievous sin. And then finally, verse 14, a beautiful prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing, be acceptable, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So a plea from the heart that what we think and what we say might please God, our stronghold and salvation. I'd like to end with one, one picture. In 2002, my son Matthew and I uh, were part of a short-term medical mission. There she is. A short-term medical mission trip to Zambia. And there I reconnected with a lady named Caroline Zamaya, the village of Zhangali. And uh, <clears throat> I had promised her a Bible. And so when I was able to give it to her, put it in her hands, she started kissing it and singing. She brought it to her heart and she said in Tonga, is it mine? And I was sitting right in front of her and I took this picture. Another man came up to me. He had an old King James Bible. The front pages were gone. The back pages were missing. The edges were frayed and torn. And when I was able to give him a new one, he said to me, he got so excited, and he said, Thank you, brother. Thank you big. And it was another time, I understand, we were out in the villages, and someone came up wanting a Bible. And he said, If we didn't have one, could he just have a page? Of a Bible? So the hunger was real. 
So, in conclusion, this instruction, this teaching, these truths are for us treasure, universal, precious treasure. God's will, His promises, His words of hope, His directions are like sunshine, bringing life to us, light to us, and warmth for the whole world. This light is precious because it comes from, it leads us to, it brings us to the author of life, the ever-living God who gave us an even more precious gift, the greatest gift of all, the gift of His dear Son who invites us Himself to accept Him as our own. We do this by believing in Him and turning, surrendering our will to His and receiving Him through baptism and becoming part of a grand, eternal family. And if there are those here today who need or desire to put Christ on in baptism or to become a member of this family, God's family here, you are most welcome to accept the invitation as we stand now and as we sing. Please come.